This is the Royal Elephant Podcast for the 19th of May, and here is my Full of Birdsong co-host, Jon. Hello, Jon. Full of Birdsong. We did like seven takes, and this is the best you come up with. Pretty much, yeah. And there can't be any birds in the sky. only the second take. Come on. Yeah, hey, it's, it's called um, Exaggeration for Dramatic Effect. Is that what it's called? <laughs> really? Are you sure? <laughs> See, now that is exaggeration for dramatic effect. <sighs> oh, I thought you were being nice to me for once. <laughs> uh, anyway, as our listeners can already notice, we're having our good relationship going on again. <laughs> Fortunately, the people, the good people, won't have to suffer with just us two today. Indeed. We are joined by uh, John Woolahan, author of the Mastering Large Datasets with Python. Um, and even if you're not a Python fanboy, um, don't immediately switch off because actually we had a really good chat about a whole variety of things yep. that aren't just all about the Python. Now, just before we enter into the interview, because I don't want to spend too much time on the intro here, uh, we do have a giveaway going on related to this, uh, to this uh, episode. So stick around, and somewhere through this episode, we will tell you how you can get some free stuff. And obviously, as always, our patrons will get first dibs at anything free. So if you aren't a patron yet, uh, well, it's too late now for this one. But we do do this giveaways from time to time. So well, if you like the show and you want to give us a little bit of extra support, take a look at the Patreon and uh, we will do our best to give something back to you from time to time. Show and let's anything else from you. No, let's 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 dive in straight to some large data set Python goodness. So welcome, John, to the Roaring Elephant Podcast. How are you today? I'm doing great. Fantastic. So you are at the, I think it's the final stages of your, your you've actually, you know, I tell a lie, you've actually completed your book, Mastering Large Datasets with Python, with, um, with the uh, MEEP program, haven't you? Yeah, it came out in January. So it's been a couple months now. Well, that's still the process. Come on. Yeah, hot, hot off, off the, the presses, digital exactly. digital presses. The digital um, presses. So, yeah, tell tell us uh, tell us and the audience a little bit about you. Uh, how, what what led you to this book and uh, what led you here? So, I was at Indiana University uh, working on a PhD, and I had had spent some time in in industry uh, before going back to do the PhD. Um, and while I was there, I was doing, um, you know, big data AI stuff. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I, I was working with these really smart, uh, academic computer scientists, um, who could do really sophisticated AI things. The, the problem that they were running into was that a lot of the, programming patterns that they used weren't very scalable. So when we we went from kind of our, our play toy data set that we would use to test out ideas to the the you know big kind of web scale data sets that we that we wanted to do research on, we were having a really hard time actually getting results because the the methods that they would use would take you know 
days or weeks on end to run even on the, the clusters and the, the supercomputers that we had access to at um, Indiana University. Yeah. Um, and you know, entirely not acceptable for, for that to be kind of the, the blocker when you have access to, to supercomputers and giant cluster computers, right? <laughs> and, and as I you know, went, went back into industry and, and I worked with you know, early career data scientists, I realized that this is just a gap in education for uh, software developers and data scientists generally, that they're not taught uh, about how to, how to scale processes, how to scale mm-hmm. computing. And so I wrote this book. Uh, and the whole idea here is that you, there's a way to develop that makes your work inherently more scalable. And so you can take the same solution that you developed for a small problem, uh, and then when you, your problem grows in size, grows in volume, you can scale it up and scale it up and scale it up, uh, but just by adding more compute resources and, and paralyzing it. Now, of course, this only works for you know, some problems, not all problems, but for the, I'd say it works for most problems, maybe. Um, and I think it's, it's definitely a valuable, a valuable thing that people can have in their toolkit. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that that covers a little bit about um, you know why you, why you thought the book needed to be written. How how do you feel this book is different to like any of the other um, kind of you know maybe texts that other people have read before on these kinds of topics? Yeah, I think the the big distinction here is I really focus on the the process of scalability and I also focus on a lot of the 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 concepts and the 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 thought process on how you break down problems in in such a way that you can make them scalable right I think mm-hmm. that folks get they get tricked into thinking that there's um, that the only way to think about a problem is kind of procedurally and step by step and you know do this step and then do this step and then do this step and then do this step um, which which isn't very scalable, um, and and so kind of kind of backing away from that and and showing alternative ways of of doing things. I I touch on a lot of functional programming ideas mm-hmm. in the book, although you know I don't want to associate too closely with functional programming because I know the community tends to um, be very zealous. Uh, and, and so I'd rather, you know, be more flexible on, on, on that. But, uh, uh, you know, I think it's, I think it's really, they've got, there are a lot of really good ideas there and you're seeing a proliferation of those ideas into other languages, even languages that might be kind of resistant to those ideas. Right. So you're seeing functional concepts, uh, flow into even Java. Right. And it's, Mm -hmm. it's kind of ridiculous to see functional concepts coming into like your prototypical object oriented language, but they're good ideas. And so they're being adopted pretty broadly. And this kind of peels back why they're good ideas. Yeah. But 
when I hear you talking like this, and with the title of the book, Mastering Large Datasets with Python, it sounds like you're very pointing towards the developer person. While uh, I've read about uh, Total Clarity, uh, many publications to give me, give, give me a review copy of the book so I could prepare for the interview, so I read it. Uh, you do cover a lot of uh, machine learning, uh, more data scientist-y stuff as well. So uh, are you point, uh, directing this book towards the developer, the technical developer, buying the data scientist, the data scientist, all three of them, somebody else? <laughs> yeah, I, I think... Developers and data scientists are the target for the book. I think data scientists will find a lot of use for it because I think the data scientists will be le least familiar with the concepts that I introduced early on. Mm -hmm. yep. Developers might have some familiarity with some of the concepts. For a developer, it might be better as a, as a reference text, mm -hmm. depending on how uh, strong you are as a developer. For a data scientist, I think it's a invaluable way to think about how you can approach that, you know, data cleaning, data preprocessing phase, right? And I, in the book, I talk a lot about map and reduce as kind of ideas, and I one of the one of the early conversations I had with Manning while I was planning for the book was actually kind of recontextualizing the machine learning process mm -hmm. as a, a flip on the map reduce paradigm. So instead of doing a map and reduce, you're doing a reduce job to build this classifier or model function, and then you're mapping that over all your data that you want to operate on, right? So it's a flip on that paradigm. Um, and I think it's, you know, having a background in these ideas is really important to data scientists, you know, especially because machine learning, data science, these things need to be integrated into software. They can't just stand alone in their own little bubbles. We have to deploy these things to make them valuable. So I think the, the more data scientists, machine learning engineers can take these tools and implement them, it makes the software engineers' jobs easier as they're mm -hmm. integrating the machine learning into their processes. Yeah, I kind of like that because it's still a bit uh, unclear what the, the real, in my opinion anyway, what the real profile of the typical perfect data scientist is. Is it the developer that has interest in statistics and large data sets, distributed programming? Or is it the more statistician that comes from a mathematical background that has some, some affinity with programming? But whichever way it came from, you kind of miss that going small to big or big to small idea. And yeah, that's what I liked in the book too, the way you kind of merge those two together. Yeah. And I think there's a, I think there's a lot of challenges with defining like a perfect data scientist <laughs> because I mean, so many, every organization needs something different out of their data scientists. Right. Yep. I mean, if, if you imagine, you know, your small, if you imagine your small businesses and what they need out of a software developer versus what a big business needs out of a software developer, a small business might have a, you know, a single software developer. They need that person to be a full stack engineer who can do front end, back end, web apps, mm -hmm. you know, database stuff, all the above, right? Whereas, you know, at a big shop, you might touch one piece of front end code, and that's the only piece of code you touch for multiple years, right? Um, the the gap is huge and the same thing exists in data science machine learning where you've got some places that have machine learning engineers who can 
just do modeling and just focus on how do I come up with you know, new theoretical solutions to these problems and then I just hand it over, I throw it over the fence to a software team to implement. I would say the, the value is bringing machine learning to places that can't do that. Right? And if you are, if you want to be in data science and you want to be in machine learning and you have some software skills and you can implement your own stuff, you become a lot more valuable. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. So when we're talking about large, I mean, the, as we've touched on a couple of times, the subject is mastering da- large data sets with Python. But there's, and the, the book is definitely more focused towards the, the technical uh, audience, uh, the you know deeper technical audience around that, but there's obviously a lot of other considerations, you know, before you get down to okay, I'm definitely going to be mastering large data sets with Python. You know, when you're talking about large data sets, the the topic of the data lake can't can never be all that far behind or all that far out of sight, and there's there's a whole bunch of different. Um, business impacts and drivers behind you know, starting that whole uh, concept in the first place so how how does how does this um, how does this fit into that yeah so the the book is intended to be for the for the technical reader I think that there's a huge need for people to understand what what it means to to orchestrate uh, a data lake and and then how do you select technologies for different problems on your data lake? I think mm-hmm. one of the one of the advantages of a data lake and one of the reasons why most big organizations are moving to them, right, is because you can you can store all your data and defer a lot of these decisions to later about what your workflows actually look like. The, the, the tricky thing is how do you then support all of the workflows that you find out that you need, right? So if you have an analytics group, like a business intelligence group that wants to run dashboards and SQL queries, well, how do you, how do you support that? Are you going to use Pig and Hive? Are you going to stand up data warehouses and have the, those get fed data? Um, are you going to use cloud services vendors? Are you going to just use the, the raw services from the cloud themselves? I think that there's a lot, a lot going on in those decisions. Um, I'd also say that the, there's this, I wish I, I could share the link. Um, there's a, a website out there that they have a game and the game is, is this a cloud service technology? <laughs> is this an AI big data technology? Or is this a Pokemon, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. And I mean, I'm an AI cloud big data person, right? And I took this test and I could barely, barely make them all out, right? And maybe that says how little I know about Pokemon. But <laughs> there are so many technologies out there claiming that they can solve your data lake and big data problems that you know we have to be really wary as a as a community of technologists as developers of data scientists and you know i think there's 
I think there's a lot of a lot to be said for caution in this, this area as well. Yeah, yeah. Let, let's do a live test here. I, I'm on the website. Is it the big data technology or a Pokemon? Adabas. <laughs> Adabas. Um, is that a Pokemon? I'm going to go with Pokemon. Nope. Big data. Adabas <laughs> was a no sequel from that time, and there was no sequel. <laughs> oh, there you go. See? I got it wrong, too. <laughs> <laughs> Three of us here, propelled experts, all got it wrong. Just goes to show. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, nobody can keep uh, keep keep up with the uh, pace of the industry, right? That's also part of the attraction of the industry for me, the fact that it does evolve so quickly and you need to keep on your toes and keep learning all the time or you get stagnated and you get obsoleted. obsoleted. <laughs> mm-hmm. That yeah, makes absolutely. it fun for me. I mean, and that that actually plays into one of the one of the biggest conversations that I had when when writing the book, right? And as I mentioned, a lot of it is about map and reduce as ideas and a lot of people associate map and reduce with ideas with Hadoop, a technology that they see as you know old and outdated and dying Mm -hmm. never mind that it's one of these technologies that is still incorporated into every data lake that anybody is standing up right um and that you know all of the biggest organizations are still relying on these massive Hadoop clusters it's it's interesting to see which technologies do get kind of superseded and which just see kind of their their niche uh, narrow, right? Hadoop was probably one of these technologies where for a really long period of time, people just thought it could solve all of the world's ills. And now we're coming around to maybe a more, a better understanding of, of what its good use cases are versus, you know, when do we want to use other tools? Yeah. Yeah, we, we just recently did a series on everything that's dead or pronounced dead and everything that's was pronounced dead but still turns out to be the future. And for me, definitely looking at the open source part of the things, things don't die as much as they change shape. They evolve because of the whole open source thing behind it. It's allowed to just migrate, uh, revolutionize itself to something entirely, which is still kind of based on the original thing. So it never really died. It just went on with the times and stayed relevant. And pretty sure that uh, yeah, Hadoop, as it all as it originally was decreed to be, um, maybe you don't find it anymore. But the ideas behind it, um, it's going to take. Well, to be to be honest, the ideas behind the Hadoop weren't even new when Hadoop was new, because those were still from I don't know the Greek times. We'll be talking about MapReduce a bit later in the interview, but basically, there was nothing new in Hadoop, just a different way of doing it, which turned out not to be the ideal way, perhaps. But it doesn't make it dead or disappear. Yeah, and it's still uh, an important tool to have in your toolkit. Yeah, definitely. Even today. So, as we as we kind of talk about a lot of these kind of areas, one of the topics that comes up, we touched on this a little bit, but might be worth just rounding this piece out, is how you go around selecting the technologies. Again, like we're talking here about Python, but we've also, you know, brought up the topics around various different standard big data technologies and things like that. You know, how how do you think that people should be looking at which technologies they should be considering in this space? Yeah, I think the the way to select your technologies is probably not 
as as difficult as I mean, there's no like grand secret to it, right? You look at the problems that you're trying to solve, and you kind of look at the technologies that are out there that can solve those problems, and and you should just pick the one that you think will work best for you. I think the the trap that people fall into is that there are technological proponents out there that are, I mean, there, there are companies out there that make money by selling their, their products or their managed services or their um, bundled services, right? And so they have an incentive into selling organizations on certain architectures. Usually yep. those architectures are based on, it's just the, this is the most common scenario and this is the reference architecture we have to serve that most common scenario. But your business probably isn't that most common scenario, or, or maybe it is, but it's got a little twist on it. And you want to be want to be aware that you are doing your own due diligence on top of the the thought work and the reference architectures that people are providing you. Right? If you know, even if your data lake looks you know ninety eight percent like everybody else's data lakes, right? That that 2% might be really important, right? Like, you know, humans share 99% of their DNA with pigs, right? But that 1% of DNA is really, really important, (laughs) right? Um, And you want to make sure that you get that right or else your data lake might not serve you at all. Your big data structure might not serve you at all. Um, Or, you know, it might, but it might be costing you, you know, an arm and a leg that you didn't expect it to be costing. Or, you know, you might have, um, all these, you know, compute resources that you're paying for on hold all the time, um, but you only need them, you know, once every three weeks, right? Um, I work with uh, with a lot of folks who have a they have heavy data collection needs, but then only like relatively infrequent data analysis needs. And so they only need to analyze their data, you know, some mostly monthly, sometimes quarterly. Right. And so, you know, there's no sense in having all these resources just laying around. Um, they, re- they really lo- rely on AWS EMR, um, you know, Microsoft's, um, I forget what it's, their version is called, um, Google Dataproc, right? Services like that that allow you to, to spin up, um, you know, HDFS basically on top of virtualized on top of your your object store um, to to run these low frequency high volume uh, data analytics jobs, um, but that's not necessarily part of the architecture of a standard data lake where they're expecting you know maybe more regular um, analytics. Yeah, so the the, the Azure Spot is HD Insight, I think. But, yeah, that's what it's called. Uh, but it, it, when you talk like that, it, it sounds like there's no ideal, perfect uh, architectural thing you can make that always works. That can't be right. <laughs> Come on. Yeah, you'd be surprised, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's you know not a not unsimilar from you know a, a building, right? Before you decide what you want to build, you have to figure out, okay, well, how are we going to use it? Is it going to be an office building or is it going to be a church, right? Mm-hmm. Those things have to look different. You know, are we, are we building it, um, in, you know, downtown Manhattan? Or are we building it in, you know, Aspen. uh, rural, yeah, Aspen, uh, are we building it wherever, right? Different resources mm-hmm. available, um, different, different 
sensitivities of the audience, right? Who's going to be looking at it? What are they going to be thinking about it? What's the culture this is going into, right? Mm -hmm. I think a lot of, one of the things that we talk about very poorly in, especially in the analytics space, we're always trying to change, we're always trying to provide people new ways of working, right? We're, we're building all these analytics to augment the way that knowledge workers do their jobs. Mm-hmm. How do we, how do we engage with those knowledge workers and what are they going to accept, right? Because you yeah. can build the greatest tool, but if they don't use your tool, it's no good, right? Yeah, Even yeah, if it yeah. does everything that it was promised to do, um, you need adoption. And so you need to kind of really look at the full picture. Yeah. And it also kind of gives the, the, the problem of the other way around, where people want to adopt new technology just because it's a new, hot, hype thing, whatever it is, and it has a nice logo. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, Dave and me, we talk about big data from time to time. And one of the things Dave always says is that whatever you're doing there, it should either be saving you money or making you money. If it's not doing either of those, you shouldn't be using it. Yeah, I think that's a perfect point. Um, and hopefully making you money, right? Because big, doing big data work tends to be really expensive. Um, and so you, you have to have a monetization plan for it um, if you're a business. And if you're, if you're not a business, you have to have um, some insight plan for it, right? You want to understand how do we get knowledge out of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Cool. Uh, Dave, yeah, any more questions? Or can we go a bit deeper on the subjects that were in the book? No, let's, let's dive on in. Okay, because I did read the book, so I want to have my two pounds of uh, money out of this. I mean, it has to make me money. You just told me so. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I guess the main question there, I mean, from the title itself, Python. Um, everything in the book is about Python. Python is very uh, ingrained in the whole big data, data scientist community. Why? Why do you, why do you, what's your view on why Python has become this kind of uh, frank, lingua franca, let's say, on the, the whole big data thing? Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting choice for a big data language, isn't it? Because it's not a, it's not a fast language. Uh, it's actually quite a slow language, mm-hmm. and so it's really interesting that you would choose a super slow language to work in a big data space. the The virtue of it is that you don't need to know a ton of Python to be a dangerous developer, right? <laughs> there are sev- several books to the effect, like you know learn the minimal python and be dangerous or something like that right? as you've been looking um, at my code yeah <laughs> exactly right <laughs> um you can you can do quite a lot with a little bit of python yeah. um you know one of the one of the challenges i think uh that it poses it poses a lot of challenges but i think the the benefits of it are that it's easy it's accessible and you can take people from scientific fields yeah, you yeah, can yeah. take people f- in areas like quantitative finance um, and they can they can code in python with without having to learn too much syntax i mean it's a, it's a there's nothing like um, memory management or any of that nonsense in, in python right um the the data types are all flexible yeah, yeah, yeah. um no garbage collection uh, garbage collection yeah i mean it's a um it's a very forgiving, forgiving language, and I think one of the one of the big virtues of it is you can really coerce it to do whatever you want. One of the reasons why I think it's really valuable, or one of the things that I relied on in this book was Python's kind of um, 
its hands-off approach to selecting a paradigm, right? Mm -hmm. Is Python object-oriented? Is it functional? Is it typed? Is it dynamic, right? It's dynamic. Um, but what is it, right? And you know, I rely on a lot of the functional tools that come with Python and some that are developed by outsiders or the community, mm -hmm. even though Python wasn't really kind of grooved in that direction, right? I think, you know, in its, its an ideal state, it would be a little more object-oriented. Yep. But, but we can kind of coerce Python to be whatever we need it to be. In the data science and machine learning communities, Python is more of a, it's almost like a configuration language, right? So a lot of your, a lot of your hardcore stuff is written in C or C++, right? Go, and you are really just communicating with, with APIs and configuring what's going on under the hood or your, your, your organizing. Um, maybe doing a little bit of scripting to, to rearrange data, but then the heavy lifting is all happening by, by other software. I think, I think that's one of the things that gets the data science community into... It makes it hard for data scientists to screen because it's, it's hard to tell who knows, um, who, know, who has you know, software chops versus who just knows how to use the, the data science libraries. And those are mostly just configuration. Yeah, yeah, I think you're totally right. I mean, the fact that it's so, so, so flexible, so more, more morphological, is that a word? I don't know what it is now, that it can actually appeal to people that don't have a computing background. And just as importantly, mm -hmm. it's still a real programming language. It's not like, I love Perl, but it's not like a Perl. It's still, as you said, you can do object-oriented programming in that thing. So the real programmer developer also kind of likes it, though there's, there's no conflict going on there. And yeah. yeah, as an open source, if you can please, the, the more people you can please, the bigger the community gets, and the bigger the community gets, the bigger the community gets, because it keeps on building. Yeah, and I mean, you can do, I mean, you can do anything in, in Python, right? You can write, you know, scripts for your um, local whatever. You can you can write fully fledged web apps. There are a number of you know pretty popular web applications out there that were originally got off the ground in Python. Um, I think it's a you know hugely popular as a web framework or growing in popularity as, as you know there are a couple of web frameworks there that are growing in popularity. Um, tons of uses <laughs> beyond beyond data science, machine learning. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean I do a lot of web programming with it. <laughs> Just my, my my side job. Don't tell my boss. Um, <laughs> Uh, one of the things you talked about in the, the whole Python thing is the uh, concept of scalable programming. And you weren't, you weren't just talking about distributed programming there, were you? No. So I view scalable programming as, as kind of coming in three stages. So you've got the, the what I will refer to as like the laptop stage. Uh, and this is where you've got some programming challenge that can basically fit entirely on your laptop. This, is, this tends to be where people get introduced to programming, it's the easiest level of programming to teach at, and it's it's natural, right? And as our laptops are getting bigger, more and more problems are falling into this category. You can process, um, I mean, probably terabytes of data on your laptop right now, um, depending on how big your laptop is. Mm -hmm. um, 
I mean, I don't, I don't personally have a terabyte hard drive on mine, but I, I think you could probably get one. Um, I shall never, I shall not deny nor confirm. <laughs> there you go, right? Um, and, and that's kind of the first scale of problems is problems you can solve on your laptop. The, the second scale of problems is problems that you can solve with the computing power on your laptop, but you couldn't store them on your laptop. And so you're, you're working with a data set that you, is really, really big, you know, tens of terabytes probably um, and up. Um, but if you have a smaller laptop, right, you know, you might start around two or three terabytes and up. Um, and here the, the limitation is, is mostly going to be on your storage capability um, and also on your RAM, right? With your smaller data sets, you tend to be able to ingest these all into memory and at the same time or in one big chunk or not in one big chunk, but in, in a couple chunks. Uh, with really big data sets, you have to, you have to use things like laziness and you have to stream through your data sets. And so that introduces a whole, a whole new set of, of techniques that we need to adopt. Mm-hmm. And then, then at the far end, you've got these problems where you've got data that is, can neither be contained on one system and it can't be processed on one system. And this is typically because of, of business constraints. If we had an unlimited amount of time, right, you can probably process almost any amount of data on a, on a single system, but you know, just practical constraints restrict us to the amount of time we can wait. Um, so these problems tend to be at the side, at the scale of, of business. Um, you know, a lot of some big academic problems are this, this size as well. These are, these are some of the most interesting problems are at this scale, right? If you think about the, the work that all your, you know, your, um, web 2.0 companies are doing, right? They're analyzing data based on uh, millions of users or hundreds of thousands of users generating logs and they're analyzing those logs to figure out you know, what people's behavior patterns are, how do we improve our sales, how do we improve our shopping experience, how do we improve our app experience, you know, what new features do we add, how do we do this, that, and the other thing for our customers, right? That's all happening at this massive scale. And you might have, you might have solutions being prototyped out at those other scales. So you can imagine, you know, come up with a, come up with an example or test this out on a, on a laptop scale. And then let's see, let's scale it up to a little bigger size and see if it, if it holds and if it does, let's you know, distribute it out across our whole, our whole system and our, our whole large data set. Right. Um, you, know, you see that, you see that pattern a lot. Yeah, and, and one of the nice things about Python with the added layered uh, libraries, uh, modules, whatever you want to call them, is that it can actually use the same programming approaches, let's say, to do make it work on the laptop and move it towards that bigger scale, which is mm-hmm. uh, what you talked about at the beginning already, important when you go from the development to testing to production stage, where you start with small data sets for te- dev testing, and then moving into the real big world of the real data and using it uh, with Python actually makes it work reasonably okay I'd say. Yeah, and the library support for for Python I think, you know, was, was probably our biggest omission from our conversation earlier about why Python, mm-hmm. right? Because the Python ecosystem. community yeah. is just the ecosystem, yeah, is huge and probably, you know, second to none in terms of what support there is out there. 
um, especially if you're in this big data space. Um, I'd also say because Python is such a, it's such a flexible language and it's naturally a glue language that mm -hmm. people use to, yep. to stitch other programs together, there are a lot of pieces of connective tissue out there that you can, you can borrow. So if you have, if there's a new technology that you want to use, somebody's probably built a Python wrapper around it, yeah. even if the technology yeah. was written in Java or Go or Rust, right? There's probably a Python interface to it that yeah. you have access to. Yeah. And, and that's hugely valuable. If, if you got BIP, you rule the world. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, you just mentioned uh, lazy computing or lazy functions just uh, a, couple of, a couple of sentences ago. Uh, Give us the, what is this whole lazy thing? I mean, I know I'm lazy. I, I like being lazy. My boss, I think, likes it too. But that's not what you mean, right? Right. Yeah. So so lazy programming, lazy evaluation mm -hmm. yeah. is when we have a function, typically, that is, is operating on some data and it will only operate on that data at the time that it's necessary and to the extent that it's necessary. And so what happens here is that lazy functions, instead of evaluating when, we, when they're found in the code, they only evaluate when they're called um, by code downstream. So they're, they kind of set up these poll operations where somebody else has to pull that information and they're, they're stored in these instructions until then. Um, and it's, it's super powerful when you're working with, with big data mm -hmm. because you can define your logic in these lazy ways and then it will defer its evaluation until the, the very last minute when it's needed. Um, and this prevents it from some sucking up lots and lots of time. Um, it also allows you to chain these things together, right? So you can use lots of lazy functions in a row and then distribute that. And the instruction, because they're all stored as instructions, the instructions will be distributed. Um, and so it, it can become a really efficient way of distributing those workflows. Yeah, and that's, I mean, the whole lazy thing, if you're still doing it on your laptop, it may not be that big of an issue because your data set's not going to be that big. But the more you move to the right end of the spectrum where the real big data stuff happens, that's where you get the most uh, benefits from it, right? Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. As your, as your data size goes up, the, the benefits of laziness increase. Mm -hmm. I'd say that laziness really starts to become uh, something you want to focus on as you get into that kind of size two category where you, you have data that you want to process on your laptop or on a local machine or on a small cluster, but the data is bigger than you can store in memory, then you're going to get a lot of benefits out of things like streaming and laziness because mm -hmm. it's actually going to allow you to process that data in a, a logically coherent way instead yep. of trying to bend over backwards to, to figure out how do I segment this data set, how do I mm -hmm. manage my memory as I'm as I'm going through this, right? One of the reasons we select Python as a language is because we can avoid all the memory management stuff that comes from lower level languages. And we want to stay in that space where we're writing, you know, kind of abstract yeah. uh, 
declarations of our of our thought process um, and less about managing memory and state and all that. Yeah. Now, Dave's been chomping at a bit here. He's got a very important question to ask about Python. I do, I do. So actually, one of the things you touched on earlier is like Python is one of those languages that's been around for a long time. It is it is ubiquitous in, in many ways. And you, you mentioned like so many different libraries and so many different wrappers for things. Um, but of course, you, you can't talk about Python without talking. So are you still running Python 2 or are you using Python 3 yet? Like, <laughs> Python 2 was supposed to be, I, I was just checking up on this before we, before we recorded, it was actually slated to be end of life back in 2014. And that end of life date was actually pushed back to 2020. And it is now as of, uh, you know, January 2020, it was finally marked to end of life. But I know for a fact that there are still so many people with so many projects and, you know, different um different chunks of development going on that are still relying on Python, you know, 2.x code, whereas we're we're already further on in the 3.x in terms of version numbers, at least, than, than 2 ever got to, with us already being in, in 3.8. So how... How how has this happened? I guess is one question. Why why it ain't broke? <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, but like how how did we how did we end up in such a mess with Python? Yeah, it's um, it's really interesting. I'm not sure I have a I have an answer. Um, <laughs> I have. I don't uh, know that anybody you know, has a, a really good I have answer. A complaint, right? <laughs> I. Um, I actually inherited a Python 2 code base from a colleague at <laughs> the end of last year. Um, and they, you know, I didn't know anything about the project going in. Um, and they said, here, you know, we've got this great piece of software. It's yours now. You know, your team can have it. And, and we looked under the hood and we're like, this is all in Python 2. And it expires in two weeks and we're all about to go on. <laughs> Like, you know, yep. whatever, right? At <laughs> the end of the year. Um, so that was, you know, we had a we had a fun January kind of porting everything over. I think... Ah, who the, needs testing anyway? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I think, you know, Python 2... At, at this point, you would hope that no people aren't writing new new code in Python yeah. two. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's it still has, um, or it it just was switched over. I'm trying to think. I know it because a lot of Unix utilities are written in Python. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and so I I'm trying to think if they I think they just switched over to Python three sometime last year. Is that right? Yeah. Um, most so of I, them. Yeah. You know, there's, yeah. Um, and then. You know, Macs all come with with Python two, right? For the same reason, um, and so you know, there's just a, it's just really ingrained in the, the technology. Again, because people use Python as glue, they use it to glue these systems together. And once you've glued these systems together, you don't want to, you know, don't shake the tree. And the systems might have changed. You don't want to go in and mm -hmm. and kind of read do all that and if you if you start messing with that glue you know what all falls apart right i think one of the problems that we run into as as software developers is that our our projects are 
complex and it's it's really hard for any one person to understand all the moving pieces in any one system. And that means when we have even technologies we want to get rid of, it's really hard to get rid of them because that we've, you know, we can't account for all the side effects of having worked with it just that one time. Yeah, yeah. But, but to be fair, just uh, just I'm sticking up for the for the for the number two man there. There was nothing wrong with Python two. Sure, there were new things that made things more beautiful, more elegant. Was able to do to make more more expression. I don't know. But if you compare it with Java, for instance, the old Java stuck around for ages as well, but it was leaky. It had a garbage collector that was, well, really garbage. It had <laughs> problems, and it still stuck around forever. Python 2 was kind of okay, sure. It was kind of a, a brick wall at a certain point on the, the new paradigms and things like that, but it still worked. So a lot of people simply didn't see a reason to move up. Now, that being said, I was one of them. <laughs> yeah. Now that I have moved over, now that I have moved over, and I have, I do appreciate what, what the new functionality is available there. I mean, we're not going to go through the whole architecture and uh, syntax of Python 3 versus Python 2, but there's definitely some good things there. But again, I liked Python 2, and there was no compelling reason for me to change until that guy from Rossum or whatever his name is. It's a Dutch guy, by the way. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm borrowed Dutch. I'm a Belgian, but I live in Holland, so I, I still count it as mine. But he decided it was uh, <laughs> quitting time and had to switch over. But I think that, for me, is why it stuck around so long, because basically, it still worked pretty nicely. Yeah, yeah but I think that's right. It's, it's the whole kind of building a castle on sand, though, isn't it? Like, it's going to go away. Like, support for this thing is dead. People are going to stop, like, removing it from distros, and you're going to end up in this this, yeah. this deathly cul-de-sac of doom um, with this project that, said, that all of a sudden is, is unsupportable and, and everybody's I, I use, screaming at you. <laughs> I use CentOS for everything. CentOS and Red Hat had Python 2 in there until version 8 came out. And version 8 came out when? <laughs> September, October last year sometime? Yeah. Just the nick of time? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Devin was yeah. much for, much uh, earlier, if I remember correctly. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, and again, uh, sand castles, you know what computer chips are made of, right? Silicon. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Oh, God. <laughs> anyway, let's move on from this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, we're talking for um, uh, quite a while already. So uh, maybe start wrapping up a little bit here. Uh, well, one question I do like to ask when I have this discussion with people that are in the machine learning environment, uh, you got, you have kind of two camps. I'm not going to start a religious war here, but you have the Spark, PySpark, Python guys, and you have the R community community and there's mm. very little overlap you're either one or the other and there's no hate going on i think but still there's no real <laughs> social interaction happening let's say mm -hmm. uh, how do you experience that in uh, where, you, where you're from yeah i mean one of the one of the challenges that i have is um i mean i lead a polyglot team in a lot of ways right so we use a variety of languages for our software development and we use all the languages for our machine learning engineering um and so I've got folks who do Python and we, I have folks who do R. I really wish I had more folks who did both. I think like you're saying, right, people tend to, to silo themselves in, in one camp or the other based on you know, where, they, where they learned, how they came up. Um, I, I'm a big fan of a lot of the things that R does. I would say that the, um, you know, a, a lot of the, 
They're much less consistent in their APIs than than Python. Mm-hmm. The Python community tends to be, uh, which makes it a little a little more confusing. But then you know the tools that work tend to work great. Um, yep. The and again these these enterprise scale Python tools that you know we're talking about like PySpark um, are are very well refined. Um, but it, essentially, they're wrappers around other technologies. I guess R is the same thing, right? It's a wrapper around C libraries and and Fortran libraries, um, for the most part. Um, but I think they're—I mean—they're both excellent. They're both excellent tools. Um, I would say that I think one of the biggest advantages about using Python is that you have an easier time, again, throwing code over the fence if you need to move code from your if you have different state teams, if you have a machine learning engineering team and a traditional you know, web engineering team, software engineering team, you have an easier time throwing code over the fence if it's all in the same language or if it's you know, in Python. Uh, are people aren't, mo- I would, people are developing web applications in R, very few of them. And, they're they're not at the same scale as, as the Python applications, and there's not the same support for it. Um, probably for good reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'd say that to me is the biggest distinction is that your flexibility with with Python and the ease of integration into other things. Again, because Python is such a good glue language, mm-hmm. um, isn't rivaled with R. That said, R's the amount you, the amount of power you have with R is probably greater than the amount of power you have with Python, just because the the community in R is more focused on how do we how do we get the most cutting edge techniques out into the ecosystem and how do we optimize them for kind of your laptop scale problems mm-hmm. um, or your your like second tier problems where you have a big data set but you don't want to you don't want to spread it out too much. Yeah, I'm kind of curious how that's going to have how that's going to evolve in the future. Because I mean, we're still working in the big data sphere ourselves, and when I look at the new things that are happening now, integrations with newer stuff, I see mm-hmm. more integrations happening with the Python stuff than with the R stuff. The R has gotten yeah. a little bit of a uh, dusty image, perhaps. I don't know. It's it's not sexy. It's not hype enough. I don't know. I still love R for a lot of traditional statistics. Oh yeah. Um, and I think it's got a huge value in terms of visualization. If you have, so all the all the big data visualization. I mean, I'm not. There are no big data visualization shops, right? But people who are serious about data visualization think, you know, the New York Times, right? They do a lot of their graphics. They start in R and then mm-hmm. they port them over to yeah. Illustrator and and yeah. illustration software. Um, and R is is much better for that yep. because it can easily output these vector graphics. Yep. Um, you know, Python can export graphics to vectors too, but the graphing libraries in Python yeah. aren't as, aren't as, you know, yeah, totally well thought out as the graphing Python's in, in R. Um, it's going to be in Python 4, I so promise you. Python 4, yeah, the graphic <laughs> version of Python. Yeah. Drop, I, and, drop and drag programming. <laughs> yeah, I think there's an interesting conversation to be had about like where Python is is heading and you know what its what its future is, and I'm sure you know the people at Python are, are thinking about that really hard. Um, but it it is kind of serving all different masters right now, mm-hmm. right? And how 
how strong can you be while you're serving all of these different approaches and, and you know, maybe that serves them well, but I would imagine that they start getting undercut in a variety of different areas by people who, who come up with, you know, better niche ideas. Just like, you know, Python used to be the, the niche way to write, you know, small programs. Um, I, it'll be interesting to see how it develops. Yeah, I do think it's kind of mean. I mean, after a decade, they finally got Python 3 out, and you're already thinking about the next versions coming. <laughs> <laughs> well, if it took us a decade to get away from uh, Python 2, right? I'm, they have another 10 years at least. Exactly, exactly. All right. So it's been great chatting with you, John. Um, as we sort of bubble up from the depths back to the surface here, um, we sort of obviously we've been chatting to you about your your book from uh, mastering large data sets with python on manning publications and uh, there was a a book that was part of the the meep program the manning early access program so i'm kind of curious to understand you know how was how was your experience of using that you know what what sort of feedback did you get as you were um as you were working on the book One of the things that I wasn't really prepared to answer was why I didn't include a lot of different big data technologies, right? We talked <laughs> we touched earlier on mm, like God, the prevalence yeah. of all these big data technologies out there. And, and so when you have a title like <laughs> Mastering Large Data Sets, right, everybody comes in thinking, oh, this is going to tell me about this big data technology that I have in my mind. And, yeah. and here I am trying to like pave an approach. Um, and be, because of there are so many technologies out there, um, I, have, I have lots of little call outs in, in the book that are to the effect of, um, hey, this is, a, this is also a technology that you could use to do X, Y, and Z thing. Uh, we don't cover it here, but you know, go find other resources about it elsewhere, right? Um, and, and sometimes Manning had, had books on those, and sometimes you know, we, we had to point them to, to other resources. Um, but I think it's really illustrative of, of kind of the space that we're, we're moving into um, where there are uh, so many different ways that you can accomplish the same goals and there's such a proliferation of options that it become, it's really hard to, to choose the right path um, as you know, an architect. Yeah, definitely. So does that mean that the, uh, that, that, that sort of feedback has already given you the next book that you want to work on? Or are you taking a, <laughs> taking a little break from, from authoring for a time? Just, just so you know, like every author we've spoken to so far has said, oh, no, I'm done for a little while now. <laughs> yeah, well, I, uh, I hate to buck that trend, but I have, um, I have a book I'm under contract for now, and okay. I am... Um, working on a proposal for another right after that um, fantastic so no rest for no rest for the wicked yeah um hey, you keep writing yeah. we keep reading no problem that's the goal i mean um <laughs> i think uh you need somebody to when i was learning i found a lot of value in texts uh textbooks i you know not like your traditional textbook textbook but um, books that were written by people in industry who had ideas about 
how these things worked and they could lay out, they took the time to lay out the fundamentals that mattered and the principles that mattered. Um, and they're, they're invaluable as a young developer because you don't have the experience yet to really make any of those judgment calls. But if you have somebody saying, hey, you know, here are the reasons, if you understand those reasons or if you're opening to listening to those reasons, right, it can help you form your own you know, thought process and, and understanding of development as a profession, right, machine learning and data science as a profession. Um, and so, you know, I, I hope that these books can kind of extend that out to who's ever interested in learning these skills um, and, and learning a thought process around, around these things, right? I mean, as we've talked about map and reduce, they're not new ideas. Um, you can certainly learn them elsewhere. Um, I think I've put, it, put thought around them in a way that other people haven't, and I think that's, that's the value that you'll see. Perfect. Um, anything else that, that we didn't cover that you think would be uh, key and important and remiss if we didn't mention? I don't think so. I think we covered. I think we covered everything that's you know important. The you know maybe the one thing that I would say that we haven't talked about is a a question around like the cloud and and how do you move to the the cloud because the cloud can't be separated from the conversation about big data um, and. You know, I, I think it's we're moving to a place where developers need to have a good understanding of the cloud. Data scientists need to have a good understanding of the cloud. Like, what does it mean to be um, architected for the cloud? Was how do how do how does software run in the cloud? How is that different than running on a on an individual machine or like a single box in the cloud? Right. Um, I mean, I'm sure that, you know, maybe you both remember back in the days when you did a lot of, you know, your networking um, yourself and you did all your systems administration yourself, right? What does this look like in the world of infrastructure as code and, and all that stuff? Um, the world is getting a lot more complicated for developers. Um, and I think that's something that people will want to will wanna look at. And I think there are a lot of, tr you know, there are a lot of trade-offs there between the different cloud vendors um, that have to be considered as well. Um, no, again, you know, I don't have solutions in any of these areas, um, but I, I want to add it as like an extra wrinkle um, of mm -hmm. complexity, just because I think you know it's important. It's um, it's a it's a foundational piece that that underlies a lot doing a lot of this big data work. Nice, nice, very much agree. It, it's definitely cloud is the inescapable gravity right now much more so than, than almost anything else. Although, speaking of inescapable gravity, I think uh, Jon has oh, yeah. some big data I, versus I, Pokemon to round us off. I, I can't. I mean, you gave me this website. We're going to do a couple more before we say goodbye here. I got three, I got three selected, so go, guys. Arvados or Arvados. Arvados. That's that, got to be a big data technology. Oh, see, I was going to go Pokemon. Okay, so one of us is going to be right and one of us is going to be wrong. It's big data. Oh. <laughs> it's a web of microservices for unsuspecting sysadmins. <laughs> Whatever. All right. I <laughs> don't even know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Next one is an easy one. Azkaban. That's a Pokemon, right? 
I well, I I don't know. I I'm gonna go with Pokemon. Wait, isn't that I a be... Harry Potter? Uh, thing? Yes, that's a Harry Potter reference, but it's big data. <laughs> so yeah, oh, it's gotta be a big data technology. It's a workflow yeah. scheduler. And the last one I really like because of the little uh, underline the thing I'm gonna read afterwards. But first, the name is Tokutech. That's gotta be a big data technology. I'm gonna go with Pokemon. I'm gonna go with Pokemon again. <laughs> it's big data, and if you wanna oh. know what it does, I, I love this one. Tokutech claims to improve MongoDB performance by 20. It is unclear if it also means losing 20 times as much data. (laughs) 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 And with that, I want to say a great thank you to John for joining us. And, and introducing me to, I think we have our new end of the webcast, uh, podcast uh, thingy yeah. now. <laughs> Just take one up every time. But uh, no, it was well, great um, talking to you, John. Yeah, this has been great. Yeah, really appreciate it. Unless, Dave, if you have anything else. No, really appreciate it. Great, uh, great chatting with you, John. Uh, all the best with the, the book and with your next ones as well. So look forward to hearing a bit more about them in the future. Get in touch when they're uh, out or almost out and uh, see if we can do this again. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds great. Okay. Best of luck and thanks for joining us. And we're back. So that was the interview with uh, John Wollohan. Again, as I said at the beginning, uh, a lot broader than just big uh, big sized Python things. And uh, Dave has a totally private uh, uh, opinion about <laughs> what that means. Uh, I do hope people like the big data or Pokemon uh, uh, questions or, or what you call that uh, contest we were having there. Uh, it was a long time that, that's, that we saw that, uh, that that website again, but I still like it. I actually played it with my wife as well uh, yesterday evening. <laughs> but uh, no. Uh, we should keep it in for next episode as well, perhaps. Uh, give us some feedback. Let us know, people, if you want us to do more Pokemon versus Big Data <laughs> contests, trivia or not. Indeed, indeed. And we we do, as promised, actually have a, uh, a book giveaway. So do, uh, if you're interested, please send a mail to a bigpython2020 at roaringelephant.org. And we will, uh, you know, it is first come, first served. So uh, get those uh, get those emails in quick. Yes, and the codes will uh, allow you to go to the Manning bookstore. Uh, this is, of course, sponsored by Manning uh, to allow you to download the ebook uh, PDF. Uh, they have a couple of versions of it uh, of the book, and uh, so you can consume it at your own leisure. Indeed. So that's uh, any drop us an email to big. Python 2020 at RoaringElephant.org if you're interested in having a free copy of the Mastering Large Data Sets with Python from John Wollan. Limited inventory, so don't delay. Mail today. See, I said that before you could. <laughs> I know, well done. Well done. Well done, Padawan. Well, with that one, a last big thank you to John for joining us uh, for this interview. And um, look forward to more uh, content from authors and good books from The Roaring Elephant as well. Unless you have anything to add. Nope, nothing else from me. Then that is all the time we have for today. You can support this podcast. You can become a patron, as we already mentioned. Every contribution helps, and we give something back to our patrons from time to time as well. We are on YouTube. You can like, subscribe, hit notification bells, and make Dave happy. 
You can also go to www.roaringoff.org. There's a link there for our Patreon page, our Merc store, and a lot of other stuff. You can also follow me on Twitter using the at Roaring Elephant tag. I'm still trying to say at Hadoopcast for some reason. <laughs> uh, well, and you can send your feedback to podcast at roaringelephant.org. Until next time, my name is John. And my name is Dave. And we look forward to talking to you next week for some more big data and Pokemon trivia. See you then.